I'm thinking we're going to see some movement on Bitcoin ETFs. And I think we're going to see them probably not anytime soon, but maybe towards the end of the year, possibly come to life. Hello, and welcome to Exchange Traded Fridays. It's a weekly roundup of ETF news. My name's Sean. I'm editor-in-chief here. And wow, do we have a fun episode in store for you guys today, not only because it's our very first episode of the year, but we're diving into everyone's favorite New Year's pastime, predictions for 2023, of course. So to help me do it are my colleague's senior ETF analyst, Sumit Roy. Say what's up, Sumit. Hey, Sean. Happy New Year. Happy New Year. And our managing editor, Heather Bell. Hey, Heather. Hey, Sean. Happy New Year. Happy New Year to both of you guys as well. So today we're going to take some of the hottest trends from last year, spin them forward, try to peer into the proverbial crystal ball to see what might take place next year. Full disclosure, we are in no way psychics, um, but even the broken clock is right twice a day, right? So we gave it a shot. Our editors and reporters have each taken a few moments, scratched their heads, looked toward the future. We published it in a recent ETF.com article you can find on our website. We're going to dive into some of the most eye-catching ones that our newsroom came up with this year. There's a lot to talk about. The FTX meltdown crypto Ponzi thing was big. Then we had the Fed, which was just incessantly um, hiking interest rates, whether we liked it or not. Let's get on the record. Let's find out what we think is going to happen in 2023 and put our money where our reporting has been. Sumit, let's start with you. I know you want to talk about, we've seen a lot of kind of the politicization of ETS, if you will, or ETS are kind of taking political bents and slants. There were a handful of anti-woke quote unquote funds that popped up, at least, I think at least a couple, right? Trailing some others, and I'm sure you get into. Take us through your first predictions for 2023. Yeah, Sean. So up until now, ESG has kind of grown unimpeded, right? Everyone loved ESG. It has something like eight and a half trillion dollars worth of assets under management and those type of strategies in the U.S. So my first prediction is kind of going against that. It's that this whole anti-woke or anti-ESG theme is going to continue to grow. And I think it's prime time for this movement because we're less than two years out from the presidential election here in the U.S. And Republican politicians are probably going to really hammer home this idea that investing is being corrupted by a left-leaning agenda and how woke capitalism is taking over, et cetera. And we've already seen potential presidential candidates like Florida Governor Ron DeSantis and former Vice President Mike Pence blast ESG. And it's essentially been pulled into the culture wars at this point. And I think that's going to continue, right? Anti-ESG funds play right into that. And as you mentioned, Sean, Strive and DRLL, they're at the forefront of this. Strive is the big uh, new issuer and DRLL is one of their first products. And it's been really successful. We've seen, I think, something like 300, $350 million of assets in that ETF, even though it has a hefty 0.41% expense ratio. And it doesn't really offer any unique exposure necessarily. So I think, you know, others are going to look at the success of that ETF and want a piece of that. Um, so I, I do expect this trend to continue. Uh, but Heather, I know you wrote about DRLL when it first came out. 
do you think that's a one-off or do you think this whole anti-woke, anti-ESG theme is going to have some legs? You know, I have some questions about this like anti-woke, anti-ESG type movement simply because there are a lot of people who will tell you, and surveys have shown that it's viewed this way, that ESG is a is it also a risk management strategy? I've actually referred to it as a way to avoid the lawsuits of the future. I don't know if that's the best way to frame it, but it's just something I've kind of come to view it as after having, you know, read about ESG for years. Um, Climate change is a real risk. Um, Social issues, there's like the possibility of if you're not supporting like the LGBTQ community in your company, you could be open to more lawsuits. So like that kind of thing, it's there is a risk management element to it. And I know that the people behind Drill are, you know, financial people, but I don't know Ron DeSantis's background before he became a politician. I don't know Um, you know, the backgrounds of other politicians who are coming out against ESG, because when you like tamp down on an investment strategy and, you know, condemn it, I don't know if that makes sense when, you know, some people may have a very legitimate reason for choosing to go with a ESG approach. I realize a lot of this, though, is public pensions. And I think maybe there is some debate to be had there about how public dollars that will, you know, support public employees will be invested. But I think throwing the baby out with the bathwater, the way a lot of um, these policies seem to be structured, is, you know, potentially dangerous and could cut off kind of some viable investment strategies Mm. before they, without, you know, consideration. And I think we're actually seeing some of that, Heather, right? I mean, we saw, and, and don't quote me, but I think some money was pulled from BlackRock, I want to say. I and mean, they've been taking a lot of brunt of this criticism from states. I think it was a few years ago. And then, I mean, a, a few months ago, or even just a few weeks ago, um, where they divested substantially from, from BlackRock. I think it was in those pension funds. And that is a concern for a lot of people. And I think we touched on the E of it, too, and, and we, like, of the environmental side with drill, but there's also the governance side. And even just a recent study came out that said um, the big three, you know, BlackRock, Vanguard, and State Street um, are really making a push to, you know, for boards and for more representation from shareholders on boards and to increase diversity and especially the amount of of women on U.S. boards. And the research showed that uh, female representation on U.S. boards increased by half um, from 13% to almost 20%, um, but it could be uh, two thirds of this could be attributed to the big three in the US. So two thirds of increasing it by half last year was attributed to the big three and that's looking to continue. So I agree, it's a huge, huge space, um, not only for things like drill on the on the E of the ESG side, but, all, uh, but also on the S and the G side, societal, like you said, with some concerns over um, diversity, LGBTQ, and governance on, on shareholders and boards. So I think well said, Sumit, and well said, Heather. Maybe since I have the mic, I'll shift over, shift gears for a bit to what I thought was the big prediction, my big prediction. I went out on a limb. I'll, I'll, I might be in the minority of this. I'll, I'll take the heat for it. I'm thinking we're going to see some 
some movement on Bitcoin ETFs. And I, I think we're going to see them probably not anytime soon, but maybe towards the end of the year, possibly come to life. And I'll tell you why. Sure, crypto has sucked this year, right? I mean, it's crazy. We saw the FTX thing. There's huge concerns over risk and regulation and all that. But instead of regulators continuing to run away from it, I think that the FTX meltdown and everything that we've heard might be the catalyst for them to actually do something, right? I mean, I think it might come, like actually do the reverse of what people might be thinking. Because there's, first of all, we've been talking about Bitcoin ETFs for over what, two years now, if not more. I mean, there at some point, I know regulation is like, you know, moving the Titanic, you know, moves at such like a slow pace in financial services, but at some point they have to do something. They've already, approved the single stock ETFs, even though some of the the, the people, the, the SEC came out against it, that still got through. That's a highly speculative, highly risky um, investment. And to not allow Bitcoin ETFs just because of the risks seems a little bit hypocritical. I don't think that that case is going to hold up that much longer. We've seen the lawsuits already allege that you know, these are kind of just not, you know, that they're kind of hypocritical. And there are also a lot of bills in Congress on crypto legislation. There's multiple agencies that are seeking public comment. I think FINRA, SEC, a lot of others. It, to me, it's now's the time. Maybe the FTX thing was the catalyst. Maybe we see some um, movement on spot Bitcoin ETFs in the second half. I just don't know how much longer regulators can keep their heads in the sand on this. I love that view, Sean. You're really going out on a limb, but I, I do like the way you're thinking that FTX, rather than creating headwinds for a spot Bitcoin ETF, could actually accelerate it because it creates this sense of urgency to bring regulatory clarity to the crypto space. I, I like that thought. And hopefully that's the case because, you know, I do agree with you. It is kind of hypocritical that we don't have one of those. And even though we have all these other risky crypto ETFs already on the market. I kind of wonder if the very concept of a physical ETF investing in crypto just kind of contradicts the idea that the whole point of crypto is that it's unregulated. I mean, I realize there are physical uh, crypto ETFs all over the globe, just not in the US, but it almost seems like the two concepts are at war with each other. I don't know. Maybe that's a very naive way to look at it. And also, Crypto is in the dumpster right now, and I don't know if there's a lot of interest in a crypto fund right now or a physical crypto ETF right now. Yeah, no, yeah. That makes sense. Go ahead, Steve. Yeah, I mean, and that's a great point, Heather, right? There is kind of that conflict, right? Bitcoin's supposed to be this decentralized asset that you hold yourself. And, and when you go and buy an ETF, someone would be custodying that for you to kind of flies into the face of the ethos of decentralization and what Bitcoin originally stood for. But, you know, the fact of the matter is, even though Bitcoin, yeah, it was designed to be decentralized and self-custodied, today, a lot of people want exposure to that asset and they want someone to take care of all the messy details with, you know, holding private keys and things like that. So, yeah, there is that conflict, but I think, you know, it works. Right? If you want to self-custody your Bitcoin, you could do that. But if you want someone to hold it on your behalf, 
that's an option as well. So I think the more options that people have, the better it is. That's yeah, no, well said. And yeah, I'll just say last I think I think possibly regulators and the whole country saw just how dangerous this stuff can be if we don't take a stand and kind of work together to, I mean, I'm talking about for regulators like the SEC and the TC to try and see who's got jurisdiction. I mean, there, there needs to be some movement. Um, there are some regulations already, but obviously what we've seen with FTS, there's been plenty more. I, I don't see crypto really going anywhere. I, I don't know its future, um, obviously. And what happened last year was ominous to say the least, but I don't think digital assets are going anywhere soon. So I think regulators are going to have to act sooner or later to start to deal with some of, some of this stuff um, instead of just kicking the can down the road. Cause we saw what happened with the FTX thing. So we'll see. I went out on a limb, like I said, um, <laughs> but, but I'm sticking to it. So let's, let's go on, jump on to one of our, um, our next predictions. We'll go over to you, Heather. I know yours was on um, active management and what those launches closures might look like in 2023. Can you run us through that? Well, we had closures pick up um, quite a bit. Um, I don't have hard numbers. Um, that's going to take a deeper dive. But for the last few years, I believe since 2020, we've had um, actively managed ETFs outnumber passively managed ETFs. And so that's been almost a 60-40 split for those years. The ETF rule just opened the floodgates on actively managed funds. And it's kind of brought in a lot of smaller players. And the thing about smaller players is they can't necessarily afford to keep a fund afloat while it's, you know, still gathering momentum, gathering assets, and people are becoming aware of it. I mean, I think three years is the mark where uh, Morningstar actually starts raiding uh, these funds. So my thought is that closures picking back up and the market down about 20% at the start of this year. My thought is just simply that actively managed funds that, you know, were started by smaller firms, they just might not be able to keep themselves afloat. Um, the other part of that is if you look at the top 20 uh, ETFs in terms of performance last year, they're mostly uh, passively managed. One stands out, PFIX. It's a uh, fund from Simplify that I think invests, kind of like tries to hedge interest rates. It's basically a fund that tries to hedge the performance of interest rates. Yes. So that did really well because it was actively managed and interest rates were getting hiked all over the place last year. I just, but most of the funds that were in the top 20 were passively managed, except for a few. And they were basically active management didn't really outperform passive management, um, which is what's supposed to happen according to supporters of active management when markets are down. I'm sorry, I said went about that in a very long-winded way. <laughs> I, I think it makes sense. I think that already makes sense because what's the value that you're getting from paying, you know, probably basis, you know, I don't know how much, but probably up to 50, 60 bips more um, in some cases um, for actively managed when they don't outperform. I had read that, that actively managed doesn't really over in the short term or really over the long term generally outperform their passive Counterparts, and I was going to ask Heather: Is the is the new rule that kind of relaxed 
um, or streamline the processes to launch ETFs. Does that come into play with some of these new actively managed funds and, and, and kind of for their future? I know a lot of, since the kind of barriers were down to get them launched, a lot of people thought this is a great thing. Maybe they didn't perform as well. They didn't get the assets. Does that play into 2023? Um, I don't know. They did. Um, they did streamline the process in the ETF rule, but I think the bigger deal was the fact that they allowed automatically out, allowed custom baskets for actively managed funds. In fact, DFA said at some at one point um, when they were entering the market, they were like, "Well, custom baskets were a huge part of." why we decided to enter the ETF market, you know, after people had been waiting for them to do so for years. Mm -hmm. So I think that custom basket thing was just huge for the ETF industry and for the ETF rule. Interesting. Um, Samit, what's your take on active? Do you have any thoughts of where it might go in 2023? Yeah, I don't know if I see it necessarily gaining traction outside of some big hits, right? The things that really catch on, like the ARC suite really caught on in 2020. I think, you know, they're going to catch on if they they tackle a really big theme um, that somehow blows up. I think active thematic ETFs, that's what I think have the biggest chance of blowing up. Because otherwise, like you said, Mm -hmm. Sean, just... In general, active has historically underperformed passive. Everyone knows the numbers. Year after year, they underperform. And that's just the nature, right? By definition, uh, the average dollar invested in an active uh, strategy is going to underperform the average dollar invested in a passive strategy because you're dealing with you know higher fees. That's what it comes down to. Um, so yeah, I think you know there's there's always a chance, but I think the, the products that are going to be successful are going to come out of left field. We're never going to see it just like we didn't know it was going to happen with ARC five years ago. Um, so it'll be interesting to see, but you know, I, I don't necessarily think we can make some big, bold predictions about this space in general. Yeah. Would you go out on a limb and say single stock ETFs are going to be the next big thing? Um, no, no, I don't, I don't think so. I don't think so. <laughs> Cause I think, <laughs> The thing I'll say about that is because, um, you know, single stock ETFs, people would be interested in those because of leverage, right? But you, you already get a similar bank for your buck uh, in leveraged index ETFs, right? You have the triple leveraged QQQ, TQQQ. That gives you the same, you know, kind of leverage, really exciting type of movements without the risk of a single stock. So I think, you know, investors will be smart enough to know you know, just add that diversification and you're still, you know, have these huge moves. It's fun and exciting, but you don't have to depend on just Tesla. You can depend on the whole NASDAQ. So I think those are going to still be more popular than the single stock ETFs. Yeah. I think the other thing that strikes me about single stock ETFs is that the audience for that is very small, isn't it? I mean, that's going to be a very select portion of sophisticated investors. And they won't be sticky assets. Those are going to be very active traders. So I think there's a high bar for these funds to become ex- successful. By definition, they're going to, they're not going to be sticky at all. Right? Yeah, um, yeah, exactly. And we know how the math behind leveraged and inverse ETFs work. Over time, you know, these are just going to bleed assets, and they need a constant influx of new money to sustain a, a decent level of assets. Mm-hmm. And that's what we have seen in some of the index leverage ETFs, like TQQQ, had like I don't know seven eight billion dollars of inflows last year. 
and the whole fund is worth seven or eight billion dollars. All of all of the assets were new money that came in last year. Yeah, it's super interesting. Well, we've seen the single stocks fizzle out already. So I mean, you're right. Uh, unless they get the next new hot stock, I mean, Tesla's not going to be the hot one forever, right? So I guess they have to keep finding the, the the next big one to make these things relevant in the long term. But I guess we will have to end it right there. Thank you both, Sami and Heather, for your predictions. I hope we're right. I don't have a whole lot of faith that we we will be. We'll have to see. But thanks for thanks for giving us your thoughts, guys. Thanks for listening to Exchange Traded Fridays. As always, it's from ETF.com every Friday. If you like it, go to your favorite podcast app. Search for Exchange Traded Fridays. You will find us on there. For me, myself, my colleagues, to meet Heather, to everyone that helps us put this together, and to you guys for listening. Thanks so much. We'll catch you next week. Take care.